So for now, I want to highlight that the need for balance is woven all through the Buddha's teachings. Those of you who are familiar with the Buddha's life story, you know that he framed all of his teachings in terms of what he called the middle way, which is the balance between extremes of any kind. And this need for balance came directly out of the Buddha's own life experience. So according to the legend, as a young man, he lived as a prince, and he was able to indulge pretty much every kind of sense pleasure we might imagine. But eventually, at the age of, I think, about 27, he got tired of all that hedonism, and he left the confines of the palace in search of a more meaningful life. And for the next few years, he kind of swung to the opposite extreme, from total self-indulgence to total austerity. He went and practiced with all the foremost spiritual teachers of his day, most of whom were teaching pretty hardcore ascetic practices, such as not sleeping for days on end, taking vows to never lie down, and only eating tiny amounts of food. And the Buddha-to-be was a very determined student, so he performed all of these practices very rigorously, in fact, to the point where he almost died. But fortunately for him and for us, at that point he realized that perhaps this wasn't a very useful approach. So he changed his tactic. And he started to eat enough to get his strength back. And he started to develop samadhi in terms of the jhanas even more deeply. These are very skillful and refined mental states or absorptions that are very pleasurable. And it's said that not long after this change of direction, the Buddha-to-be attained complete awakening, complete freedom or Nibbana. And then, in the very first discourse that the Buddha gave after his awakening, he framed his teachings in terms of this middle way, the balance between self-indulgence on one hand and self-mortification on the other. So I'm guessing that In the context of our own lives today, most of us probably have more experience of the imbalance of self-indulgence. Would that be fair to say? So just in case some of you are not familiar with what this is referring to, it means the tendency to take refuge in sense pleasures, to seek out all manner of pleasant sense experiences, and as a result, putting a lot of energy into manipulating the world out there to try and make ourselves happy. Which, as most of you know from your own experience, is at best only partly successful, temporarily successful. And the downside of that strategy is that it keeps us dependent on external conditions being a certain way in order for us to be happy rather than helping us to strengthen the inner qualities that will then allow us to meet life's inevitable challenges with more ease 
more balance. And at least in my own experience, I've been surprised at times on retreat to see this dependence on sense pleasures emerging quite strongly. We want the food to be just like this and not like that. And we want our rooms to be just like this and not like that. And we want other people to be more like this and not like that. And we want ourselves to be more like this and not like that. And when our preferences aren't met, at times we can get surprisingly reactive. Has anybody noticed that? I was hoping it wasn't just me. So this is uh, one extreme. It's getting caught in self-indulgence and it enhances our suffering in the long to medium term rather than helping us to escape it. The other extreme is self-mortification, which originally referred to the ascetic practices that were common in the Buddha's day. The kind of things I mentioned before that basically involved subduing the body. So not sitting down, sleeping on beds of nails, uh, very severely restricting how much food one ate and so on. And for the most part, those aren't aspects of our lives today. But one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, has made the point that what is common, rather than physical self-torture, is a kind of psychological self-torture. So, so many of us have this deep societal social conditioning that makes us very hard on ourselves. We have strong tendencies towards feelings of inadequacy, unworthiness, even self-loathing. Unconsciously or unconsciously, we often bring those same tendencies into our meditation practice so that our Dharma practice becomes yet another self-improvement project, one that's driven by self-judgment, anxiety, and fear. So as an antidote to that kind of unbalanced practice, I've appreciated a metaphor that developed later on in the Buddha's teachings, in the Buddhist tradition. A metaphor that frames all of the path in terms of what are known as the two wings to awakening. These two wings being wisdom and compassion. And we might get quite a direct sense from that metaphor that we need both of these wings to be equally well balanced if we're going to fly. In other words, to awaken, to wake up and to experience the deepest possible freedom of heart and mind. So everything that the Buddha taught over the course of his lifetime after his awakening helps us to develop one or the other of these two wings so that they can balance each other out and give us the best conditions for liftoff. So it's just some quick working definitions of each of these two wings. Wisdom is the ability to see clearly, to develop insight. So it includes all of the mindfulness practices that we've been doing on the retreat so far, starting with bringing awareness to the breath and the body, and soon more directly to the heart and the mind too. 
compassion here is the willingness to turn towards suffering, pain, stress, distress, and to try to meet it with kindness and, when possible, to help it to release. And perhaps because we are in the insight tradition, the wisdom wing of the practice has tended to get more emphasis and less attention has been paid usually to the compassion wing. And in this context, the compassion wing refers not only to compassion itself, but it's a kind of an umbrella term for all four of the Brahma-Vihara qualities. So kindness, compassion itself, joy, and equanimity. I'll be coming back into each of these in a little more detail soon, but I want to stay with the big picture and just to get a sense of how this metaphor of the two wings can help us find balance in the development of our Dharma practice overall. Because I think most of us tend to have a bias more towards one wing than the other. So in the overall development of our practice, it can be helpful from time to time just to check how is that balance between wisdom and compassion? In my own practice, when I look back over time, now with the benefit of hindsight, I can recognize phases where one of those wings had got a little out of balance with the other and the gap of the development it was pretty uncomfortable, painful, unsettling, and discouraging until I eventually realized what had happened and could take steps to come back to balance. So, as I mentioned, because we are in the insight tradition, it seems to be more common for the wisdom wing to get ahead of the compassion wing. We tend to put a lot of emphasis on seeing clearly And at first, our insights are often on a more psychological or personality level. So we start to recognize our own emotional habit patterns, our conditioning, all the ways we tend to get triggered into painful reactivity. And at certain phases in the practice, it can feel like all of our so-called defilements, in quotation marks, are revealed to us in vibrant, even violent, technicolor or extra high definition. And so there's that old joke that self-knowledge is not necessarily good news. And at this phase of the practice, often what we need to do is to strengthen the compassion, particularly the self-compassion, to meet what's being revealed with kindness rather than judgment. And then as the insight practice deepens, we move beyond perhaps the more psychological insights and we start to tune in more clearly into the three universal characteristics of all experience, which as many of you know are what all of this insight practice is pointing to. The truth that everything is impermanent, anicca. And because of that impermanence, it's imperfect. In other words, unreliable, unsatisfactory, dukkha. And it's impersonal. 
There's no permanent, stable self to whom this is all happening. And much of what we experience is actually outside of our control. So to use the traditional Buddhist term, it's not-self or anatta. And especially at first, this experiencing the truth that everything is impermanent, imperfect, and impersonal can be unsettling, even painful, because it challenges us to let go of some very deeply held beliefs about who we are and how the world is. So again, at these times, we might need to consciously cultivate the compassion wing of the practice again to develop some resilience of heart and mind so that we can navigate these challenges with some degree of ease and balance. So that's just some of the ways that the wisdom wing can get too far ahead of the compassion wing. It's also possible at times that the compassion wing can get too far ahead of the wisdom wing. So when, for example, we start to connect very deeply with the first noble truth, the truth that there is suffering, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, we can start to feel our own and others' pain so intensely that we get overwhelmed. And for most of us, we don't have to look too far to find this dukkha. In fact, thanks to modern media, it feels like all the misery of the world is being beamed directly into our living rooms 24-7. And that's on top of the dukkha that we're already experiencing in our, ourselves and our families and our communities. So it's not surprising that at times we might fall into grief and despair. And at those times, again, we might need to reconnect with the wisdom wing of the practice, to tune into the other two universal characteristics, to remember the impermanent and impersonal nature of all experience. Because when we really see that everything is constantly changing, that even unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, dukkha, comes and goes, and that none of it is personal, none of it is unique to us and is our personal, due to our personal shortcomings, then it becomes possible to taste deep freedom, even in the midst of difficulty. So bringing awareness to both of these two wings of wisdom and compassion, and learning how to balance them, is part of the art of the practice. So tonight I want to focus a little more on the compassion wing because, as I said earlier, that tends to be the one that doesn't get quite as much um, emphasis. So how might we find the balance of the middle way that the Buddha emphasized so much? Well, we're fortunate these four Brahma-Vihara qualities are ones that we can train in we can develop them through regular meditation practice using a range of different techniques that help to make these beautiful qualities more and more the default settings of our hearts and minds. 
So before I go into a little bit more detail about each quality, I want to say something about the term Brahma-Vihara itself, as well as being a little bit difficult to even articulate as a word. It's also a difficult phrase to translate into English because the word Brahma refers to a kind of god that was worshipped by the Brahmin tradition in India at the time of the Buddha. And we don't really have a direct equivalent of Brahma in our own culture. So the Brahma part is often translated as heaven instead. And the second part of that word, Vihara, means dwelling place. So Brahma-Vihara, on one level, literally means the dwelling place of Brahma. But it's more usually translated as divine abodes or sublime abidings or heavenly realms or boundless states. And I'd like to highlight the aspect of Vihara as being home because these four states are our true home, a refuge for our hearts and minds. And they're also the natural expression of our hearts and minds when they're not assailed by stress, distress, and difficulty. This is where our hearts and minds naturally abide and dwell. And there's a sense of ease there, just as there is with our physical home. There are a place or a state where we can feel relaxed and comfortable and who we truly are. The second aspect of the term Brahma-Vihara that I'd like to highlight is the quality of boundlessness. So sometimes these four qualities are, are referred to as the four immeasurables. The idea being that we can cultivate them so fully that they become unlimited, boundless, completely unconditional, which is a very high bar. So before this idea might start to reinforce any pre-existing sense of inadequacy, I just want to emphasize that these are practices, they're trainings, and each of us has to start where we are and have the patience to let these different flavors of love develop gradually through this training, through this cultivation. So traditionally, we begin with metta, kindness, because in the insight tradition, metta is the foundation from which the other three develop. And metta is a Pali word that's usually translated into English as loving kindness. But some scholars and teachers have pointed out that this is not a strictly accurate translation, because in English, to some ears at least, it can sound a little bit sentimental or wishy-washy. And the loving part of loving-kindness can be confusing because, again, in English, the word love has come to means have such a different range of meanings. So we can talk about loving ice cream, for example. And then we have an obsession with romantic love, the kind that we see in movies or read about in magazines and novels. And it's 
a very exclusive kind of love. It's reserved for only one person. It's often highly emotional. It's unstable, and it doesn't last. So in many ways, this kind of romantic love is almost the opposite of the kind of love that we're talking about in relation to metta, because it's conditional. Whereas metta, as a brahma-vihara, is a quality that can be developed until it's completely unconditional. So the actual word metta has more of a root in the Pali uh, that means friendliness, kindness, benevolence. So often I tend to leave it untranslated so that you can find your own uh, sense of what makes sense for you. And just to say that in some of the suttas, the discourses, metta is defined simply as non-ill will. So hopefully that makes it a bit more accessible. Hopefully most of us can manage at times this flavor of non-ill will. So again, just to mention that this is a gradual training. And in the beginning, we're invited to start where metta might come most easily. And for most of us, that means keeping it simple and perhaps natural. So here at Camp Samish, we have the support of the natural environment. And just in the couple of days that we've been here, I've been appreciating all the creatures that we share this environment with. And I know in my own practice, it sometimes felt easier to start metta through a relationship to non-human beings because sometimes our relationship with animals and birds and fish and even insects is a little less complicated than it can be with actual human beings. So as I was walking back and forwards to this hall over the last day or so, there were a few times when I noticed an American robin just sort of darting through the bushes at the top of the track there. And there was something about seeing its orange breast and its darting movements and that very bright, alert, beady eye that it had, that I felt this little spontaneous pulse of warmth. And I silently thanked it for giving me that hit of metta. And perhaps some of you have had a similar experience. If you close your eyes for a moment now and just Perhaps you have your own favorite bird that you may have seen around here. And as you bring that bird memory to mind, perhaps you might feel just a little flicker of warmth at the heart center. Perhaps a slight smile and softening of the eyes. If you do feel that, let it register as just a flicker of metta. And if you don't feel that, don't worry. Maybe birds just aren't your thing. Perhaps some other wild or domestic creature is. I have a friend in Australia who loves snakes and reptiles of all kinds. So whatever you can find that works for you to develop that trace of metta that feels easy, just over the next few days, start to tune in and see what that might be. 
So metta, then, is this foundation quality of kindness, goodwill, friendliness. And it's said that when this metta encounters suffering, it flowers naturally as the second Brahmavihara, which is karuna, or compassion. Compassion is the willingness to turn towards pain, towards stress, distress, dukkha, in all its myriad forms, and to meet that pain with kindness, and wherever possible, to help it release. So because of this intention of the relieving of suffering, compassion is not simply empathy. It's not just the heart that vibrates in response to our own or other's pain. It's also an orientation to relieving that pain, if it is at all possible. So sometimes people ask, well, what's the difference between metta and compassion? To me, at least, metta is a more of a, a generalized goodwill or friendliness, whereas compassion is specifically oriented towards pain, towards suffering. So there is a close connection between the two, but energetically, compassion can feel a little different. So to get a sense of this, I'd like to share another bird image. This is um, this one is from a, something that a friend showed me on YouTube a while back. And it's a, a very short video clip. Looks like it was taken on somebody's phone, so it's not a professional thing. And it shows a small bird, maybe a sparrow, sitting on a metal railing outside of a window. And you see the sparrow keep trying to fly off, but it can't. And it took me a few seconds to realize that it was deep winter and that the bird's feet were actually frozen to the railing. And shortly after I recognized this, this big pair of man's hands appeared in the video and it, they very carefully cup the sparrow to stop it struggling. And then the man bends down low and he starts breathing on the sparrow's feet to gently warm the metal around them. And you see the sort of ice crystals start to disappear. And after a few seconds, the pipe does warm up enough and the bird's feet are freed. And you hear the man say, here we go, little birdie, go ahead and fly away. So perhaps as you heard that story or visualized it, you might have noticed a little energetic response somewhere in the body or the heart. And perhaps it had a slightly different feeling than just more general metta. And this too is part of the skill, the training in the Brahma Viharas to be able to tune in to the effects on the body, the heart, the mind, and notice the kind of the signature qualities of these different flavors of love. So the third in this sequence is mudita, often translated as sympathetic joy, altruistic joy, or appreciative joy. Because traditionally, the orientation here is towards sharing in other people's happiness. It's the capacity to feel gladness 
when we can connect with someone else's good qualities, their success, their good fortune. And of the four Brahma-Vihara practices, this one seems to be the kind of the poor cousin, because it doesn't get nearly as much attention as the others. Perhaps because in our dominant Western culture, with its competitive and highly individualistic values, the idea of appreciating somebody else's success doesn't make a lot of sense. So for some people, this one, mudita, is the most challenging. But if we persevere, we can find that the ability to celebrate other people's happiness does actually bring us a lot of benefits. And we start to understand that actually excessive self-preoccupation is a recipe for unhappiness rather than happiness. There are some lines from the Tibetan master Shantideva that capture this very succinctly. He says, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. So as we continue to cultivate this quality of mudita, our sense of separation, of isolation and lack can start to diminish. We feel more connected to others, kinder and more generous. We stop taking our problems quite so personally and we recognize that all beings want to be happy just as we do. And we start to more easily understand the truth of interconnectedness, which is an aspect of anatta, of not-self. So in this way, mudita can directly support the development of insight. And again, to get a felt sense of the flavor of mudita, I'd like to continue with the bird examples. This time from when I was living at IMS, the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And I know many of you, several of you who have been there on retreat. And I lived on staff there for about seven years, and that's where I first met Dara, as well as several other good Dharma friends. So I don't know if this still happens today, but there used to be on the back veranda outside the dining room, there was a stock of sunflower seeds, and people on retreat could um, take the sunflower seeds and offer them to the little chickadees that used to hang around out the back there. And I think you have chickadees here in Washington, right? They're maybe a slightly different variety, but the same general cute little birds. And sometimes you would see somebody sitting so still and so patiently with the sunflower seeds in their hands that the chickadees would land right in their hand and take the sunflower seeds out of their hands. And when I would see this, I would feel mudita, not just for the bird that was getting fed in winter, but also for the human who was offering that moment of um, delight and receiving that moment of delight from the contact with the chickadee. 
So again, you might just notice if there's any sort of flicker of recognition in your own hearts and minds. And if it does feel slightly different from compassion or metta. So now we come to the fourth quality, which is upekka or equanimity. And equanimity isn't a very common word in English anymore. And I don't think I'd even heard the word until I started to explore these teachings. But it basically means balance, balance of mind, evenness, stability, composure. And it's the capacity to meet whatever we experience, whether pleasant or unpleasant, delightful or painful, with non-reactivity, not resisting, not holding on. But this non-reactivity is not disconnected or dull or non-responsiveness. True equanimity actually has a very refined and subtle energetic quality to it. We're open to whatever life presents us without moving in it into any form of wanting or not wanting. So it's a quality of deep acceptance and peace. And the Pali word upekka has its roots in words associated with seeing, with vision. So the literal translation of upekka means to look over, which suggests being in a position to see the bigger picture. So it links directly to insight, to clear seeing, to vipassana. And so perhaps you're wondering what kind of bird might represent equanimity. This one was a little more challenging, but so I was relieved to hear, to see that you have turkey vultures in this state, as well as in Massachusetts. I thought of turkey vultures because they're not cute like chickadees, at least not to me, but they're not, you know, aggressive or attacking like some kind of birds, uh, magpies and so on. And when you see them flying, you know, really high, to me they have that association with being really high up and being able to see the bigger picture. So hopefully it's not too much of a stretch, but for me the turkey vulture was the uh, symbol for equanimity because it connects with that sense of spaciousness, the vastness of the sky, and that vastness can put our own small struggles into perspective. So that's a very brief overview of what these four qualities are, and we are going to be going into them in more detail and doing some actual practice with them over the next few days. I wanted to take just a few minutes now to talk about the interrelationship between all of them. Because again, in my own experience, we really need all four of them working together to develop the most benefit just like the four strands of a four-strand piece of rope make it stronger than a single strand, when we have all four Brahma-viharas interwoven, we can have a very strong practice. And together they act as very effective antidotes to the hindrances and all types of afflictive mind states. And in my own practice, quite a few years ago now, I got interested in how these four Brahmaviharas work together. 
when I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts. And one of the teachers there was talking about the nature of mind. And he quoted quite a well-known quote from the 19th century Tibetan master Shapkar. You may know this quote. It says, the mind nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And when I first heard that phrase, it really struck me. I had been practicing with the Brahma Viharas quite intensely for a few weeks on that retreat. So when I heard this image of the mind being like a flawless piece of crystal, that quality of transparency made sense to me. Because when the heart-mind are clear of the so-called defilements, it can automatically respond in the appropriate way, with kindness, with compassion, with joy or equanimity, just as a diamond naturally responds to light. So sometimes the diamond flashes red or blue or yellow, and all of those different qualities are possible because of the diamond's innate purity. So as I was contemplating all this, I started to think about the traditional shape of a diamond with four points. And I imagined the four Brahma-viharas arranged around that diamond shape with metta at the bottom, because it's the foundation. And when metta turns towards what's difficult, it flowers as compassion. So I imagine compassion at one of the two side points. Likewise, when metta turns towards what's going well, it flowers as mudita, appreciative joy. So we have compassion and joy at the two side points. And then when compassion and joy are completely in balance, we have equanimity. So as I say in the Taoist tradition, we can open to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, and that's an expression of equanimity equanimity at the top, the apex. So one way this diamond arrangement can be helpful is to see how the different Brahma-viharas might balance each other out. So for example, the metta starts to feel a little bit dry or superficial. We might consciously change to doing some compassion practice for a while to give it some depth. On the other hand, if we find ourselves getting a little bogged down in grief when we're doing too much of a compassion practice, that might be a good idea to turn towards mudita, appreciative joy, and balance out uh, where our attention is landing. Sometimes, though, mudita can shade into sort of elation or giddiness and get a little bit ungrounded. So then we might want to turn to equanimity to get a bit more stability to cultivate balance of heart and mind. So each of these practices has what's known as a near and a far enemy. And the far enemy is the opposite of the quality that we're trying to develop. So for example, with metta, goodwill, the far enemy is ill will. They also, each of these qualities has a near enemy, 
which is something that at first glance might seem like it's in the terrain of the Brahma-vihara, but is missing the mark in a certain way. And we'll be going into more detail about this later in the retreat. So for now, I just wanted to name that, in some ways by way of reassurance, because sometimes when people sit down to start cultivating these qualities, speaking for myself, it can be quite horrifying to see what actually emerges. <laughs> so just to know that this was recognized early on in the tradition as a kind of a byproduct in the beginning of this, these trainings. I'll just offer uh, a piece of writing that I've shared a few times now by the English Dharma teachers Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs because they have such a succinct way of laying out how all of these four Brahma-viharas are interrelated. So they say metta or kindness is the love that connects. It's an antidote to all forms of aversion. It is not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, karuna or compassion brings the heart back into balance. Karuna, the love that responds, is an antidote to cruelty. It is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, Mudita, or appreciative joy, brings the heart back into balance. Mudita, the love that celebrates, is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, upeka, or equanimity, brings the heart back into balance. Upeka, the love that allows is the antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. If it slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. So in this description, you can see how each of these four qualities can be used to overcome some kind of unhelpful mind state and that each of the four helps to balance the others out. And perhaps you noticed too that each quality slides quite naturally into the next, and in the end we return again to metta. So if the last quality, equanimity, slides into disconnection, it's metta that brings the heart back into balance. So we come full circle working through each of these qualities over and over again, a kind of a spiraling journey around and through all four. And ultimately, it creates a beautiful force field of unconditional love. So again, just to remember that these are practices, they're trainings. And one aspect of the Buddha's teachings that I'm extremely grateful for was that he didn't just say, be kind and leave it at that. He gave us actual meditation practices that we can do, that we can engage in to help us strengthen these stillful qualities. 
There's a lot more that I could say, but as an act of kindness right now, I'd like to bring this talk to a close. I'm pretty sure that for many of you, being the first full day of a retreat, it may have felt to be a long and full day, rich and perhaps at times challenging. So I thought just to take one moment to review your practice today, the highs and lows, the ups and downs, the rewards and challenges. And as you touch into perhaps some moments of difficulty or struggle, perhaps you can get a sense of which of the four Brahmavihara qualities might be useful as an antidote. To see whether developing more kindness or compassion, joy or equanimity might give you the strength, the resource you need to face that particular challenge if it happens to come up again. Alternatively, if for you today it just so happened that you didn't encounter any particular struggles or challenges, then thank you. Right there we have an opportunity to practice mudita, appreciative joy, and you might have an opportunity to practice equanimity. So I'm just trying to give a sense of how these practices are pretty much always relevant as you go through the rest of this retreat. And as I said, we will be going into them in more detail over the next few days. So on that note, thank you for your kind attention. Let's just take a moment of silence together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.